This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today my guest is world-renowned, Grammy-winning musician, John J.R. Robinson. J.R. is widely considered the most recorded drummer in history, playing on albums that have sold well over 500 million copies. He is the drummer on 20 number one pop songs by artists such as Michael Jackson, Whitney Houston, Lionel Richie, and Steve Winwood, and has been the drummer on more than 100 Grammy-winning tracks. Rolling Stone magazine featured JR in their list of the top 100 drummers of all time. JR is also the drummer on many other top 40 hits, with artists such as Madonna, Lady Gaga, Diana Ross, a Daft Punk, David Lee Roth, Rufus, and Shaka Khan, the Pointer Sisters, Wilson Phillips, Peter Cetera, George Benson, and Quincy Jones. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, you can join our Patreon page. And for as little as a dollar a month, you can get some educational content. Most recently, we've had former guest Kyle May go through his snare selection in his home studio. We've got great new content from Bruce Becker. And coming very soon, we've got a video from former guest Brian Zach called Developing a Great Ride Swing Feel. So all this educational information is accessible at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash working drummer. If Patreon isn't your thing and you want to make a one-time donation through PayPal, you can find that link on our website at workingdrummer.net. So real quick before we get started, if you're interested in the history or the timeline of JR's career, check out our good friend Nick Ruffini and his interview with JR about eight years ago uh, on the Drummer's Resource. Also, to set the scene for what we were talking about when we first start this interview, I asked him about the 83 release of Rufus and Shaka Khan Live and just that groove and tempo and all that stuff that they were doing so well in uh, actually 82 when it was recorded. So that's kind of where we're at. So without uh, wasting any more time, let's get to this. And I hope you enjoy my interview with John J.R. Robinson. extremely blessed uh, by being born with great time. There's no ego involved in that statement. And and um, sometimes, uh, okay, well, wait a minute. I'm not an Eastern Indian person dealing with things in 17. So then that's a different concept of how 
the phrases land. I'm a North American drummer. And so we, we deal with downbeats yeah. and then everything that follows a downbeat. We are not Cuban. We're not dealing with a clave pattern. So we're dealing with a low bass drum and then everything else is built from that. So if you use that analogy, everything from where one is, or if it is one, that should be God. That should be word. Wherever you land your right foot, or unless you're a left-footed drummer, wherever you land your bass drum foot is word. Then everything else above that or around that or surrounding it is um, gravy. Just making, and then you have to be able to make uh, your other limbs blend with whatever downbeat it is. And of course, that's contingent upon what kind of song you're playing. What is the guitar part? What is he playing? Is he swinging slightly? Or is he implying straight eights over a swinging theme? So all these things need to go into your brain without clogging your brain or freaking yourself out. And uh, so um, during the Rufus, during that live recording, and by the way, that was recorded February 12th, 13th, and 14th, to, uh, 1982. Okay. Uh, didn't, didn't hit it until the next year, and then, the, then we won the Grammy. And that's usually the way things happen. So February 12th, eh, no magic. February 13th, eh, no magic. Now, February 14th, all of a sudden, I don't know, everybody had friggin' wings and they came in in a whole different light. And when that when when they said go, the shit was on fire from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, we had Ernie Watts and Jerry Hay and Larry Williams and David Williams. And I, I hired Lenny Castro and then we had Stephanie Spruill singing. And so it was just this mass unit that was all in tune with each other. So you to tie into your question, no click track. Well, we would use click tracks in a studio, of course. And in those days, it was a seven frame film click by Yuri which was only gave you certain options. And those were what they used to sync film with. It's a whole nother story. So live, how does that happen? First of all, you get to know your bandmates. You know that this guy over here, he's really hyper. You know that he's going to be maybe a little edgy on top. I'm not mentioning names. And, <laughs> uh, and then, you know, maybe, uh, you know, uh, Bobby, the bass player, Bobby Watson, great bass player, you know, played with Billy Preston's hits and um, um, wrote Renee and Angela's hits. Uh, Bobby Watson plays incredibly great time, kind of like a Willie Weeks type player. And uh, so both whom I've played with, and they're both kind of similar with their approach, and they're not real loud dominant uh more you better follow me or, or or it's the highway he's a blender so okay. when you have that and then dealing with two keyboard players those guys are just gravy on the top and uh even on a song like tell me something good which is clav featured or stevie wonder ish because he wrote it uh my job is to get people's asses on the dance floor right so that's what i do that's what I did. And and then when these songs come up, uh, you know, like, like a segue live into uh, Midnight, the song Midnight, which I originally wanted to play the horn line in the front. Real bop. 
uh, which is like a pentatonic de- descending scale. And everybody in the band says, don't play that shit. <laughs> Let's just let, let Jerry Hay, because it wasn't even on the record. So we added the horns. Let Jerry Hay and the horns guys just do that without you. And then you come in. I go, well, that's an interesting idea. I go, oh, the time's dragging. The time's dragging. We're playing this live. It feels like it feels like it's dragging. It's like yeah. you're almost like falling down the stairs. I go, well, but it's really musical. Well, it's so interesting. I'm sorry to cut you off, but that very moment when I was listening to that this week, I thought if that if I was playing that today, I, f- I would feel compelled to to be hitting the hi-hat to keep some sort of time. And yet they were playing so well together yep. that it didn't matter and music was happening. It was, and it wasn't dragging as, like I said, it may have earlier in the uh, in rehearsals, but... It was just spot on, and it's almost like, it's almost kind of like how, if I was going to time transport back into the '40s and play with uh, uh, Kenton or Herman or 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 any of those great big bands, you know, or the greatest swinging band of all time was Count Basie. You know, yeah. if you're going to play that, they're playing shit by themselves without the drummer playing, and and there's there's just something to be said about that. So, how do we get to that? I always talk about having an inner clock. We've heard that. I've repeated it. I may have borrowed it from somebody 40 years ago. But it's true. Every drummer has their own internal time. Not every drummer's time is the same. Not every drummer's time can be compared with Steve Gadd or me or or somebody like that. Everybody's got their own way. Or, you know, the way Jeff would actually be behind the beat, but yet the beat would be so smoking it would never drag. Well, that's almost impossible. If you're if you're analytical nerdly, you know, how, how do you how do you deal with that shit? So one way I dealt with it was first of all, uh I stayed away from the bad seeds that would uh um get you in trouble uh, chemically. I would, okay. I would never do that. And so you have to focus without stress. And that's a very difficult thing to separate. So uh, using your own inner clock and you feel, oh, shoot, like uh, there's a song, Stay, that uh, Moon Calhoun wrote. And, and, and when, when it goes one and two and three, it's like, Man, it's almost like you want to pull that whole thing back, but you do. You go with the musical phrase, and but you still keep your inner clock going. That's the kind of groove where you could almost like, well, if I'm got, I don't play straight sixteenths on the right hand. I don't do that for several reasons. I could have done that on that song, mm-hmm. which would be very reminiscent of an early seventies R and B drummer. But I chose not to do things like that. So by adding ghost notes and and the patterns in between the actual two and four and the 16th notes and the hi-hat, it creates a, a, a hump okay. uh, with, with, within the style that then blends in with your word downbeat. And then what you do is you listen, you listen to what the vocalist is is laying down and singing, and and you realize, well, why is he or she phrasing it that way? And sometimes it's crazy. You're like, wait a minute. You know, I, I'm not in the cars. I'm not playing robot 
straight eighth robotic eighth notes you know i gotta i gotta put something on there because the song's that way right granted if the song was a straight eighth cars tune you would play it very robotically sure sure so i'm kind of uh, delving into this deeply but i think it's all uh, on a per song basis and um you have to know if you rush or drag inherently as your own person right you and have can, to know that and we can find out because we have the tools we can look we can look when you talk about being nerdy and and looking at the the tech of it now we have the ability to look at the waveform and say that verse felt great this verse felt like shit let's look at it i mean let's not listen with our eyes but now we have the opportunity to see where did that kick drum where did that downbeat fall Whoa, that's way on top. That's why that felt like shit. Why does this verse feel good? And I'm speaking from experience here, especially recording a lot at home. We have a lot more exposure to our own playing and personalities. We can actually start to super analyze things in a way that we never did before. Right. Or that 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 most of us that didn't spend as much time in the studio as you have, now we have no excuses but to find out how we do that. Well, Another question, not you or anybody else, just in general, why we're analyzing ourselves and maybe looking at the waves and, but really listening, don't look at the waves because the yep. waves are misleading. Excuse me. Is why did that second verse not feel as good as the first verse? Why? Mm-hmm. Well, and then you have to now analyze your, your thing. It's probably because you've lost, you lost, um, What's the word? You were distracted. Okay. Somehow you lost concentration, mm-hmm. or they lost concentration, or I lost concentration, uh, or you took it for granted. And 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 there's a fine line there of if you're playing a song for the first time, you have to concentrate without being robotic or sterile. Uh but let's say you're you're in a band and you're playing that song and and uh, you know, the first verse felt like shit. And the second verse felt really good. Well, why is that? Because your your uh, concentration, your uh, you're analyzing yourself or something, or you're not paying you're paying attention, or the fucking light is too bright, or look at that hot waitress, you know, or something's in the way. And um, uh, what you have to do is, okay, you know, it's not going to be the same. And, and matter of fact, all the recordings I've done, if you've ever listened to a verse one and a verse two, they're not the same because, yeah. uh, and, and those in, in our golden days, they don't want it necessarily to be, uh, uh, clones of each section. Right. Uh, they want a song to be born and grow through the song. And that's generally what a great song is because lyrically or melodically, a song will grow. It'll have a a beginning point, a middle point, and an end point. And if you, that's why when you hear songs that were great songs, like I'll give you a song, uh, which maybe it didn't matter. It was um, um, Time After Time. 
just one of, you know, we all wished we had written that song. And she just nails her performance. And uh, she makes it. But that was done with, a, what, an LM1 or, or something. And, and it's, it's absolutely lifeless. But in reality, it didn't matter at all. Because she helped, the drum machine was the least important aspect of the whole record. You know, it was it was her performance. So when we get to play live on something of that magnitude, there's several trains of thought which uh, our technology had changed throughout the years. You know, in the earlier days when I first broke into Los Angeles, you know, it's about. You know, I'd, I'd set up the five-piece Gretsch set and have tom-toms and, and uh, you know, and I always strike, well, you know, I don't want to overplay anything. And, you know, coming out of a Billy Cobham brain camp, I go, well, man, I could add some shit here. And, and, and reality goes, we, we don't want any of that stuff here, they go. And so, okay, so how about a little fill, blah, blah, blah. Well, on Off the Wall or on um, Rufus's first solo record, Numbers, uh, and then all the way going into Master Jam with Rufus with Quincy, I got away with playing some fills. And and uh, when when we got into the Dude, uh, which won like a million Grammys, um, and I'm plugging, by the way, we are doing Quincy's 90th birthday party at the Hollywood Bowl, yeah, uh, July 28th and 9th, I believe it is. Okay. That's right when I'm back from Birdland, which we'll talk about later. Um, um, I came into the session one day, and Lukather is just wailing on me because he was uh, replaced David Williams, so he's playing guitar. And a lot of people don't know Steve Lukather can just play plays the inside groove shit better than anybody. Mm. And and so and we we had played all Monday and blah 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 blah. And Tuesday, I come in and look at there's laughing. He goes, JR, look at your drums. Look, where are your drums? And I go over and look at the gobos, and all my shit's gone. And I'm freaking out. And there was a bass drum, a snare drum, a hi-hat, hi-hat stand, and a crash cymbal. Everything else was gone. And then Bruce Swedeen comes out, you know, a great engineer, and he goes, hey, Bruce, where, where is all my stuff? He goes, eh, Quincy doesn't want any fills on this record. And he turns around and walks away. <laughs> and I'm going, yes, sir. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you don't, you don't ever argue with these people. And, no. and, I, and, and, you know, there are times when you listen to the dude and all the songs on there, there's times where, I, you know, I'm playing, playing, uh, you know, I'll, I'll do it on the snare drum instead. And I got away with it. You know, because it needed something. It needed a bridge drum fill of some sort. It makes but, you think differently, too. I know I kind of uh, veered off our, our subject, but um, no, yeah. again, um, we're going to be playing those songs live and there'll be no click track. So uh, I think, uh, uh, again, the, the subject is drums, so we're not getting off any. <laughs> well, I'm talking about keyboards. Real, no, no, go ahead. <laughs> hey, I was, I was talking World War II before. Um, oh, oh, I talked drag racing. Okay. <laughs> Uh, we're not allowed that in uh, Tennessee. Oh, drag racing. I'm yes, sorry. Yes, you are. Yes. Okay. Yeah. No, no. It's like guys in drag racing. No, that's oh, right. Okay. Well, so, you know, that would actually probably sell. That would actually sell NASCAR drag NASCAR. Ugh. Maybe they'll turn right for a change. <laughs> oh. oh, my God. I go there. 
It's just gold, man. Thank you. You're doing me a, this is a great service here. Um, oh. Ouch, 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 ouch. <laughs> this is awesome. You don't even have an accent. Uh, no, I'm, I'm originally from Columbus, Ohio. So, yeah, the, 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 the city of the city of like no accent. And, and my kids were raised here, but they have no accent either. Oh, well, good. It's it's Nashville. It's it's so, you know, whatever. It's everybody here's from hey, we're coming. We're, we're coming there uh, with David. Um, David Foster. Yeah, we're coming there. I think it's in August, uh, October or, or early November. Where is this information? Would it be on your website? You, it's not on mine yet. Uh, it, it'll probably be on David Foster's website, but we're we're closing the tour out uh, at, uh, what's the name of the theater? Um, not the Ryman. Is it the Ryman? There's the Ryman downtown, um, which is the Opry House, um, which is a great venue for all things. Um, and it's switched up. TPAC, Tennessee Performing Arts Center. Could be that. Uh huh. There's, there's, I mean, there's a few. It'd be maybe one of those two. But anyway, people can and look at that. It's okay. That, that's amazing. That, yeah. That's anyway. Amazing. Keep an eye on that. So, uh, what I want to do is I want to ask you uh, to kind of circle back to my original uh, question slash concept was this sense of time feel because ultimately what I want to try and do is get from you this idea of tempo and lately and I say lately the last 15 20 years using a click live has become more standard than I ever realize i mean i realize in in pop but then in country when i moved to nashville it seemed like everybody was re was performing live with a click you had to do right. that right and i'm like cool and so I, I made it my mission to be able to be super confident with that so i could perform live under stress under any situation any tempo and then also well when i'm in the studio that's 99 percent of the time anyway so it's a win-win now i'm coming to the point where I feel like playing to a click is more comfortable for me than without it's gotten to that point. And I keep going back to these recordings, whether it's something my son has discovered from the 1960s or 70s or early big band stuff that I used to do. And I'm like, or playing in bands like so many of us used to without click, without right. that stuff. Right. And I in in something reminded me of that thought process when I was listening to your live recording from '83 or '82. Sorry, right, right, that, right. That I'm like, what was it about that that is so important that might be we might be losing now? Well, we've it's we're definitely losing. Okay, uh, but what was that? Um, First of all, the entire band at that point, uh, everybody was kind of on the same page. You know, we 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 had enough rehearsals. We knew the songs. We, you know, there were there was a drummer before me, which was Andre Fisher. You know, the original founder of Rufus. So he had kind of set the bar his way. When and when I got in, I I I altered things a little bit and probably made it a little bit more rock and roll uh, mm -hmm. without losing the swing aspect. But the tempos. And I remember having discussions with Bobby and Tony and Hawk about, you know, um, if we start playing um, Everlasting Love too slow, it gets lethargic. And if we're just up above 
where it should be, it's unlistenable. Mm -hmm. So there's this happy point where it has to be really sultry and sexy. And then, so we started doing that just naturally all the time and on different nights in different venues. It would always play itself. You know, I, I would always screw around with uh, Tell Me Something Good, uh, which has been bastardized by uh, live club playing. And not one keyboard player can get the damn clav part right anyway. It comes in on four and people. <laughs> not one. Or and. And and anyway, blah, 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 blah. But there's a, a, there's a way to to still it and still it needs to be almost tribal and so if you keep those thoughts in your head and refrain from look at me look at me look at me the more the what is it the me too movement <laughs> get rid of the me too movement it's uh it works out quite well and so um cut to today or the last 10 years where people have um, become dependent on a click track. And generally with David, and I'll use David Foster as a great example, because okay. I've been I've been in I've been David's live drummer since 95, when we first started building Andre Agassi schools uh, in Las Vegas. But I've been playing with David since 81. And yeah. David and I and Abraham Sr. played, for example, on a song called Just Once uh, for Quincy Jones. And Played on a whole bunch of stuff together. Um, once we start getting into how David's per perceiving his show to be, we come to find out that he has become dependent on Pro Tools. Pro Tools, uh, we have a Pro Tools operator off stage. I could do it, but I choose not to. Um, we have, uh, I stopped my feet hard enough that I would either get a um, Allen and Heath personal mixer or a um avioms personal mixer so i would have control of my drums and everybody else and click track vocals reverbs everything it's like every time i get behind the drums with david foster with i have a monitor guy named pete brennan from chicago he works for osa he is by far the best monitor mixer i've had in my entire 50 years uh, of playing and I um, mean, you, know, you know, if he wasn't a dude, I would have to probably marry him. You know, he's that <laughs> that good. But so when I get behind the drums, it's like driving a a, a, a Bugatti Veyron or a, or a McLaren. I get mm -hmm. I get there and it's just everything's perfect. And and like, you know, he's got his waves plugged into the snare. And uh, so when I hit the cross stick exactly at four and a half inches off the sweet spot. I pop at the same velocity as, as if I'm hitting the snare drum at yeah. the same velocity. There's no differential. Boom, that transfers to the house. Okay, going back there, the click is at, at the last fader. We changed every single band that plays with us. Earth, Wind, and Fire plays with us. Leanne Rhymes, we just keep, let's just keep going. Faith Hill, Garth Brooks, uh, uh, a million people keep playing. Tears for fears. Everybody plays with us. We put their clicks, which sometimes went, who the hell can listen to that shit? 
<laughs> That's got to go. So we go into Pro Tools and go into MPC No Accent, mm. which was a offshoot of the URI sample, which is also the URI sample is a little thinner. And, and um, actually, the URI box sounded better, even though it had a hum. So the MPC No Accent. Now I say, and quarter notes. Now the Nashville people will hate me because the Nashville pe drummers like to have, most of them like to have eighth notes in their grooves. Yeah, and yeah. to me, that is just wrong. Mm. And I Why? will, um, because don't let me forget what I was going to say. Okay. I'm not, not bagging on my brethren. I'm just saying that when you have three, four, one, two, yeah, the zoom is cutting your sound out, but you're playing. Uh, you're playing eighth oh. notes. You're clapping, but it, it's funny. It's it's canceling it out. It's funny. Well, it it, it automatically knows I hate them. <laughs> but you know what you're doing. You're you're doing one and two and three. And, yeah, right. Right. Two and hands, three. three. How about I can play it soft? Oh man, it's still it's still our. Yeah, fuck it. And that's what whatever it is. Anyway, so if, if they're eighth notes, that doesn't leave a lot of time to put your own magic on this in this groove yes yes it 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 it, 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 lim it, it limits you and yeah. and, and uh, while i'm on this tangent and we'll go back to that click yeah I'll give you an example take an earth wind and fire song like after the love is gone at 60 bpm instead of uh, uh one and two and three and what i go one you can hear me singing that right yes click click so there's so much space between one two two three three and four and four and one yes there's so much space for artistic expression not none of that just just groove groove over that click some people are always going to rush that next. They're going to rush all those beats. What they got to do then is put your body into it and make sure that, that your downbeats are word. And that is something that has to come natural uh, by being fluid and loose. You don't want to be stiff. You want to be just loose. And that's why, uh, like, uh, like, uh, Oh, shoot. Certain artists and in, in, in the old R&B artists didn't like 16th notes or 8th notes. They just liked quarter notes in the hi-hat. They just wanted to mark it and play all this stuff in between. But um, I was a little more prone to breaking that up. So now getting back to the quarter note, it makes more sense to be able to have artistic freedom without dragging or rushing. So yeah. how, do you, how do you achieve that? If I were to teach, which I do on occasion now, I used to teach all the time, and now it's just like a lot of stuff going on. But um, most drummers ask me about this time concept. Why am I the king of groove, which is, by the way, the title of my record, I mean, my uh, book, which we'll talk about later, is why, why have I learned this? And, you know, several reasons. When I studied with Ed Sof when I was a child, he got me out of a bad habit of playing heel up, which 98% of drummers on this planet play heel up. Yeah. And that, and that means, and I've you've probably seen this, 
that means that your whole lower calf, knee, upper thigh, all the way into your back muscles are moving to lift your bass drum leg up and down. Mm-hmm. And so I play most of the time, if I, I keep my foot cocked off the beater bass drum and the beater's off the head, yeah. I'm already ready for the next beat. So yes. now I do now go back and forth with these days, but if I keep it that way, my downbeat is secured to exactly where it should be. And I and I've released the head and I don't get any double things going on, depending on what kind of beater I'm using. So that is one reason why the time then went from forward to back to the pocket. That's something that a lot of people look at and they go, oh my God, that's hard. And sure, it was hard. Ed Sophie used to say, "You're going to get pain in your uh, in your in, uh, front shins. You're going to get pain." I go, "Oh, I got pain." He goes, "Stop. Walk around. Stretch it out. Now get back on there and do it again." Yeah. And then one one day it clicked. One day I'd be like, "Shit!" I was just playing like a Stones groove, and and, and I realized just like one and three in the kick. And one day, and I'm, I'm like, I don't feel good. I don't. I'm. Not, I I feel uncomfortable. I, everything else felt good, but my foot didn't feel good. And if your foot doesn't feel good, you're just, you you, you got to get out of the business. And, <laughs> and I also, but I didn't. So all of a sudden one day I kept doing what he was saying, releasing all of a sudden, oh, I, I relaxed. And then, and then the beat went. Right. And it did it. And then I go, wow, what did I do? I don't know what I did, but it did it. So I kind of just kept that in my brain, and then that became a trademark. And that was, because of that, helped me identify and then capture and control time and not let time control me. Thank you. Thank you, John. I mean, this is exactly what I wanted to try and get into here. And and I can tell you that you are helping to diagnose an issue for me that I know that as soon as I rush that downbeat, it doesn't matter what happens after that. To get back on time or on the grid or on the click or whatever it is, I have to pull everything back and then things start sound draggy. If it's the start of a fill and I'm like, I'm playing this in time, but you started too soon, you ass, you know? And so it's just having that foundation, like you say, be word, be God, that downbeat makes so much sense. And we're all thinking about we're thinking way beyond that. We're thinking about backbeat. We're thinking about ghost notes. We're thinking about the drum fill that we're going to play. We're think we're not thinking about the most important thing. Well, that's very true. And and um, you know, during the COVID times, didn't you just want to like hang yourself with all these effing? I can say fucking all these fucking. Drum solos on TikTok and Instagram and Facebook. Go, look at me, look at me, look at me. And I, and I, I'm seeing a guy bouncing his sticks like he's in a fucking circus. And it sounds unbelievable. Yeah. But, but if Quincy saw that, he'd throw up <laughs> and, and not hire the guy. And I go, okay, this is okay. And I like, we start watching this shit. And then all of a sudden, I, I like last week, I, I see a drummer who's six, seven years old. Yeah. That plays better than Billy Cobb and Eddie Van Halen or uh, 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 Alex. Alex Van Halen ever played. <laughs> and, and have you seen this kid? 
I don't, I don't know. I don't, Which I one? Know. Which one, John? Heisty signed him. You know, I don't know why, because it's got to be burnt out when he's 12. <laughs> and, and I'm like, you know, where, where is this quick fix thing? I, I don't know what his name was, but he scared the living shit out of me. Well, I, I, I understand, but, but it shouldn't. It shouldn't scare any of us. Well, it scared me because I remember <laughs> a kid named Jacob, uh, hmm. Armenian kid, years and years and years ago. Okay. And Remo had uh, Louis Belson had taken him under his arm and got him over to Remo, and he, he had a full on Remo endorsement. He was on all these TV shows, and he was like eleven and twelve years old. And this kid was played like, you know, half a Terry Bozio's kit that size, huge kit. And and I'm like watching the kid, and I went and saw him play, and I'm like, oh my God, how was how a kid at twelve years old playing like that? Yeah. And then. Then I, I'm not really sure what he's doing after a few years, but then I heard he, it was a full burnout. And mm -hmm. so I go, well, okay, you know, I, I'm not saying anything against that other than maybe we have lost a little bit of um, what the older drummers paved the road for, for us. You know, I mean, I remember when I first saw Elvin and realized, man, this is some really deep shit, man. And like, I mean, look how avant-garde this is. And, and why is he doing that? And why does it sound like this whole thing? And, and then, you know, now you look at these, some drummers today and they're going, they're playing all this stuff that'll never make a record. And, and uh, maybe there's a, 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 I guess what I'm saying is I'm getting to the age where I can preach a little bit and say, don't forget about these guys from Zooty Singleton to, yeah. to, to, uh, you know, uh, you know, shit, and, and you know, Buddy Rich still lights up the sky, in my opinion, but with 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 his command of swing and soloing. But um, there was so many great timekeepers, uh, uh, and and showed us, you know, with Grady Tate and you know Philly Joe and all these cats that that we learned from, and then and when shit crossed from swing into straight eights, how that was very confusing and. But they were still there for timekeeping. A lot of these '60s bands, you know, with the early Kinks and and uh, just some grid. The Animals. I saw the Animals in '65, by the way, wow. and it was like they're playing. The cat was playing some great grooves, you know. And so you get to get into this newer stuff, and I, it's just it's either button pushers programming, and, and which just seems like that's what's going on. And that's, it's, well, you know, kind of sad. It, it is, but I don't, I don't see live performances going away. I don't think, I don't see the interest in, in drumming going away from the next generation. And so there's a lot of beautiful stuff that's continuing and growing and progressing. Uh, but I think that at its core, if you want to be, if you want to work with other musicians, if you want to make music, if you want to make, uh, then then there are certain tried and true elements that happened early on in this development of this instrument, this relatively right. young instrument, um, and so we haven't lost that. And uh, my my son just graduated from a high school school of the arts here in Nashville. Oh, congratulations! Thank you. He's going to Eastman. Um, ah, out school music. Bring a shovel. What's that? Bring a snow shovel. I know, I know. He's not used to it at all. He's doing <laughs> good. 
He's doing glass, classical guitar, but at the but the but the thing is, is he kind of grew. He's spent time in a bubble over the last four years of working and living and studying with kids his age that are so open minded to everything. I mean, um, he had I hipped him to a recording of Eliana Elias sings All Jobim. Yes. He had it cranking in his car stereo in the parking lot of high school. And all these kids came up to him and said, what is this? I need this now. Right. And I'm like, this is your community. But I just want to f- warn you, it's not like this overall. You know, right. it's not like this in other cities. It's not like this. And But hold on to this because we need that. We That's need, right. You know. And he comes home with a, like an Oscar Peterson recording. He's like, Dad, have you heard this? Yes, I have heard this. Excellent. I'm so glad that you found it and your friends are finding it. So it there is hope. It's happening. I, well, I agree. I mean, I've got my youngest one lives with me full-time, Jack, and, and he's he is incredibly uh, in, uh, 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 aware of all these idioms. Yeah. And, and if, if there's one or two then there's got to be 20 or 200, you know, and getting away from this button pushing bullshit, you know, with, with a damn shaking your ass with a bunch of dancers. Well, you know, know, Shannon, you know, Shannon Forrest, right? Extremely. He he could be my son, I guess. Yeah. yeah. He he refers to that as finger blasting. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, what if you only had three fingers, you could still make a hit record. Okay. Sorry. I cut you off. <laughs> no, I love. That. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> Oops. Well, let, let me pose this then your direction. What what kind of drummer do you think you would be if you were a drummer now? If you were coming up now, say you were like in your mid twenties. Yeah. Um. I, I, that's a good question. I mean, you know, I had a huge big band upbringing. Uh, jazz upbringing and um, swing. Um, if I hadn't had that, I don't know. But, um, you know, my oldest son, John, uh, is in Vegas and he plays in a, in a, like a 90s kind of rock band with all original material, plays bass. Great band, man. Derek and the Musios or something. And, and, um, you know, I watched, you know, he, he grew up, uh, he was the, you know, Quincy called him Grammy because my, my, uh, ex-wife's water broke at the Grammys when we, when we won the Grammys for the dude. So he, Quincy called John Taylor Grammy, but, you know, so he had all that, uh, that growing up thing His mother was from Detroit and, you know, dad listened to a lot of big band and, and, and Mahavishnu and, and Zeppelin and, you know, and uh, early Beatles, by the way, I cut that off, by the way. And um, Dave Clark Five, who I saw in 65 also. So I would probably, uh, uh, it would be in some sort of a rock band of some sort with with melodic intent. Yeah. You know, and I would assume it would be that kind of thing. You know, the studio world, as you well know, is gone. Mm-hmm. And now everybody with the advent of uh, even pre-COVID, through COVID, everybody isolated in, got into their own crap. And I mean, I even came up with a third solo record, which is not coming out. It's There's some really dark shit in there. Okay. And, 
Uh, oh, it's it's. But I mean, some innovative stuff. You never know what may come of that. You know, I, I grabbed a couple of things for the SRT record. Okay. But, um, uh, you know, when you're not inspired, like you said earlier, with 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 sharing your emotions with another performer, and and then running something by them, and you know, that's what's really nice about my band with SRT. You know, with Andrew Sinewick and Mitch Town, is that. You know, I'll start something and all of a sudden one or the other will maybe or nothing uh, suggest something else. Or how about we try it this way or let's move this around here or something. And it's like a, a beautiful open democracy, which was like I remembered when I was a little kid and, you know, my first band when I was 10. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I can't really see anything other than that. I mean, I doubt it would be a big band. Let's just put it that way. I love big <laughs> bands. It'd probably be some... Uh, Melodic rock band. Well, let's use this transition, though, to talk about SRT. Uh, now, you're leaving for Japan soon? Uh, Monday. Monday. Monday at for, uh, we leave. Uh, yeah, we. Uh, I played there last year with David Foster yeah. at uh, uh, Billboard Lives. And I talked to the people. And I go, I got a new I got a trio. I think it'd be perfect in here. And so we solidified the gig with our manager. And. We're flying and starting in Osaka, uh, two shows. Then we fly back to Tokyo and then go to Yokohama, two shows, and then finish up in Tokyo, two shows, which we will unveil our uh, Japanese release. Uh, okay. It's called Vanguards of Groove uh, with SRT. And then there'll be a U.S. release on September, uh, September, September 8th, right, uh, in the States. Uh, and um, So that's very interesting. Uh, one of the guys in the band, Mitch, has never been to Japan. You know, I've been there like 33 times. So it's so it's 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 a little old hat for me, but um they are so responsive to music and 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 listening to, and that's why I wanted to really kind of break this band uh uh in Japan first. What what yeah, it's exciting. I had one experience there in the early two thousands and it was amazing. Yes. <laughs> Tell me about the band and like how it came together. Um, not hopefully not too long a story. A couple of years ago, uh, before COVID, I I was uh, you know thinking about putting a Rufus, you know, actually putting Rufus and Shaka back together again. And uh, Bobby and I would talk, and Hawk and I would talk, and it's just it was just such a futile uh, attempt because of her schedule and and a little bit of dissension around certain members. And, and so I said, well, hell with it. Why don't I just put my own band together and play my hits? I mean, I've got enough hits to you know play for the next 20 years. And, and so uh, Mitch town, uh, who was our, our organist in uh, uh, SRT. And I came up with an idea to bring the J.R. Robinson experience to a club called the jewel in Omaha uh, run by Brian McKenna, who is our manager. And, uh, so we put this whole whole thing together. I found a, a a band, complete band. It was basically a Rufus clone band. Same instrumentation, blah blah blah. I found a, a beautiful singer named Allison Nash, and um, uh, Mitch put a campaign together. Uh, we had two shows in Omaha. Plus, I did a whole bunch of uh, political stuff, and both sold out. Swag sold out. It was like huge. And so I thought, wow. Well, maybe I should just take this on the road. And I realized the cost of taking a six-piece band out is hard. 
Mm-hmm. And um, uh, especially with, you know, not a, a modern hit, you know, we're going off my hits. So that led into Mitch goes, Hey, do you want to do a, should I do a trio gig? And I go, well, I always did trio gigs, man. I, I mean, back in 73, I was in a uh, Oregon trio gig, this, mm-hmm. which led into a tower and power group that we had back in Boston. And I go, yeah, let, let's look at that. So we looked and he and I started like work, looking at material and writing and, and I go, we need to write guitar players. So we went down a whole list of guitar players and uh, you know, it's like, all right, let's go to get Jeff back. You know, all right, well, that's not going to work. And, and unfortunately, he's now gone. So we finally, I, I go, I got this guy named Andrew Senowick, who's like the new young next coming of uh, Dean Parks, Michael Thompson, uh, Steve Lukather. Um, and um, he and I have done some sessions together. And we also just played on uh, Bullet Train. We, we did Staying Alive together, mm. uh, that version. And I go, Let's 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 sound him out and see if he's in. And man, and we had a Zoom meeting and he was totally in. So we all started writing songs, submitting. Uh, that works. That doesn't work. That works. How about we change this and do that? Yep. We came up with ten to twelve songs. And I and I said I, I right when I got I got COVID. I was the last one, and I had booked the studio LAFX two days after I came off COVID, and my engineer Steve Sykes is COPD. And he couldn't be anywhere near me. And I go, Steve, it's cool, man. I'm not contagious. Like, okay. So we all got together and we went in and cut the record. And the record came out just amazing, even though I was (laughs) that kind. (laughs) And um, uh, that's where it happened. And then we just started slowly meeting and sharing and doing things correct as a band would with marketing, you know, PR firm. Now we've got a beautiful PR firm. We've got Chris Meese as our agent and, and be natural. Um, so just everything is going going really well. Uh, we've got this huge uh, East Coast thing starting in Baltimore at Keystone. Uh, Ten shows at Birdland in July. Uh, then we go up to, uh, I forgot the name of the club, up near Poughkeepsie. And then then I go up to my alma mater, Berkeley Hours. And uh, we're going to do a, a seminar. And I brought in some magic uh sauce uh tom scott and to share uh the workload a little bit as a special guest and that's developing into a really cool uh uh addition so we're gonna do some of his songs but basically we're gonna plug him in uh to play our stuff so that turned out really well and um that's kind of what what's evolved in this and uh this thing is really blowing up well i i guess part of my goal was um I, you know, I want something that I feel is my own family. And there's a, there's this point where you work for people yeah, and you're behind that left wall. You're, you know, you're, you make it up to the center and, you know, me, I'm a Grammy winner. I've been a rock star and, and Rufus and, and, and Frampton and, and uh, George Duke and Stanley Clark and, you know, all these great bands, but, but then it goes away. And then, so I wanted to, Put something together that is going to be everlasting and will grow. I mean, we might be doing film scores. This group, we 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 can do anything, and we we uh, I think we should have a good ten record career, easy. And and so this is the beginning of that. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like a full time job, just like aside from just playing and writing. To- yeah, yeah. Well, it's developing that, and now now summer's coming along. We're just releasing the records, and. Um, 
uh, you know, once this whole run goes, there's going to be some live streams, by the way. And we also did good uh, um, drum workshops, 50th anniversary. Uh, we were one of the featured acts and that's all on uh, YouTube. You can find right, uh, right from right. a few months back when uh, yeah. they had their 50th. But um, uh, and then we've got a couple more things with a drum channel coming out. Uh, that'll be probably out in about a month. Um, so that's leading into that. And it's just some beautiful stuff. That's amazing. That's I, I got a preview of some of the stuff you guys have recorded, man. It's it's it covers a wide range. It's funky. It the mix is really cool, man. I mean, it's it you can hear everything, but it it's still uh, it. There's something that's rootsy about it, as far as um, I can hear what's going on. I can hear what you guys are thinking. You know, and, there's no bass player, right? <laughs> which is like, well, he'd be late anyway. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, but Mitch, Mitch, Mitch has this whole thing with his foot and his left hand and then running it and miking the Leslie a different way. And, run, you know, it's like, wow, I, I hear a bass part, but I don't see a bass player, you know, that's so yeah. very hip. It's not like Joey D Francesca or Jimmy Smith. It's, it's more rock and roll. Yeah. Which is cool. Okay. Uh, all right. So. Look for that. Um, do you guys, are, is there like a website for this particular group? Yeah. Yeah. Go to srtgroove.com. Okay. We'll have links in the, in the show notes here. People can find that stuff along with, uh, with your website. Also, I want to uh, do a, a shout out to uh, uh, Chris DeGirolamo for connecting yes. us. Uh, Chris has been a, a good friend of the podcast. We're going to get him on as a guest soon. Uh, he's a drummer and just has been super uh, kind to, to me and to our, our show for the last, I'd say, almost six years now. Uh, it's been glorious. So uh, thanks to Christian and Chris. Yeah, Chris. And, and Chris is representing uh, us uh, as SRT. And he's also helping me because uh, I've got a book. Uh, Let's talk about that coming out. I mean, I know we're, this is like plug world. Hey, and I've got this set of shoes. Too. <laughs> uh, they're really Patrick Mahomes shoes. And I am still, I'm still buzzing. I'm still buzzing from, from our talk uh, at the beginning of this is I, I just, well, I uh, after my it. plugs, we can go back to buzzing. I know we, we have a short little time here, but uh, uh, let me, let me, let me pump the book here. I've been working on a, on a book for about a year. And uh, really intensely about six months and through Allison Mang as my book producer and uh, uh, Ralph uh, Ben Mergy is a, uh, both Canadians, uh, is a jazz aficionado, runs the jazz station, has written many books, and he's such a, just a literary giant. If I wanted a, a perspective from somebody that wasn't anything like me. And, uh, you know, I'm not making a drummer tell-all book. Uh, I'm, I'm making a book about um, life stories, but how, how it will help an average person uh, through through all this stuff. You know, I was like, father was such a, just an amazing person, my mother, and then and all sorts of things. So it does definitely have a, a biographical thing, but it also has all this uh, other just beautiful uh, positive thing. So Chris is helping with me with that right now. We're, uh, we're just finishing up first manuscript. Uh, the title is going to be called the King of groove, the John J.R. Robinson story. It's a little ballsy, but, um, okay. okay. Um, uh, Quincy Jones has written the forward. Okay. And I've got 
almost every great bass player in the world is in it. And, and uh, there's, you know, Frampton and there's all sorts of just great stuff. So our plan is uh, around April 1st, uh, this book will come out and I want everybody, if they can to get it, it's, again, it's, I've read, read a bunch of drummer books and uh, I get bored. You know, th- this is, uh, this is more of a humanity, uh, you know, positive experience. Yeah, I love it. Well, if if you need a need a somebody to read some of the excerpts, we'll we'll do that for our Patreon members. Or we'll you've do- got a beautiful voice, so you. I'm counting. Oh, you. Man. <laughs> That's good. Thank you. It's my Columbus upbringing. Yeah. I know. See, and I'm an Iowa boy, so we're yeah, supposed they, to. Have That's perfect. right. Perfect American. Perfect elocution, which leads me to another thing I want to ask you about sure. is I'm listening to all these things and stuff that I've listened to forever, whether it's like. Uh, you know, Michael Jackson or, 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 or Whitney Houston or Steve Winwood. I, I had to learn a Steve Winwood song recently. I, I'm trying to think of, uh, I'll find that here. But the thing that blows me away, especially during ballads and other of these really soulful songs where there's so much space, there's this beautiful hi-hat work. And it makes me think, what did Ed Sove tell you about how to play the hi-hat that makes it work so you're not going nuts on the toms, you're not going nuts everywhere else, but there's movement in between the, the macro of the beat, and in that micro is this beautiful hi-hat thing. Can you talk about that? Yeah, and thank you for that. Um, and ironically, <clears throat> Ed didn't teach me that. Okay, um, but what I did get from Ed uh, regarding the hi hat was he had a pair of thirteen-inch old, heavy Zildjian hi hats that looked like. I mean, I went and I, I I even grabbed them with my hands. They they almost felt like Piatti, and I'm thinking, why are these so thick mm-hmm. and heavy? And and I'm listening to him play, and he's mostly playing jazz. Because, um, you know, in the Herman band, when they do something like Raven Speaks or whatever it was, you know, it was, it was like boogaloo kind of patterns. So, but but they they spoke well. But it was mostly chicks and, and things like, and he would play, you know, quarter quarter note dotted eight sixteenth and, and then two and four, but then we'd play uh you know upbeats on the hi-hats and then you could still not miss a note and it's because of the thickness so i would love to give him credit but that wasn't what he helped me with that the hi-hat work i absorbed from probably listening to billy to steve gad um and then applying my own technique and figuring out the mathematics that makes, if I am pulling the snare back three to five milliseconds, how do you do that? Well, if one is God, then one has to be God with the hi-hat. That leaves you six more beats to alter if it's an eighth note pattern. Mm-hmm. So between two, three, and five and six, let's see, two, three, two and three, five and six, seven, that all has to be uh, 
pulled back and that med forward like a just like a a, a round rope or a waveform. Yeah. And so 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 then where every time two comes, that's got to be exactly in sync with your hi hat. Unless you're unless you're you know falling up or down the stairs in some sort of a groove pattern that's supposed to be like that. Right, right, right. Some music is like that. Yeah. You know, whereas you know the old D'Angelo stuff, they would just take stuff and, and phrase it and move the phrase, you know. Yeah. So it sounds disjointed. But uh in my era, that was verboten. You don't do <laughs> you don't do that. So um I learned that hi-hat stuff by you know, if you listen to the swing version of anything Joe Jones did and how, how hi-hats patterns work. So I would apply different drummers' patterns. But I remember you just uh, you brought up a, a memory. I was playing a club in uh, Cape Cod called the Swamp Fox with w- one of my bands. Uh, I think it was called, uh, what was the name of the band? I wasn't Turning Point. It was, uh, I'll think of it in a second, or maybe I won't. But I remember playing, and we're playing, like pick up the pieces or something. There was some chick sitting at the bar getting just hammered. Eating like cherry stones, getting hammered, like probably way too little clothes on. And I come back and I'm off stage and I'm getting a water or a beer. And I just, you know, you play your hi hat too loud. And I go, what? What? Who are you? You know, you just your your hi hat's too loud. And your in your mix of your drum, your overall drums, your hi hat's too loud. I go, no, it isn't. I go, yeah, it is. And we said this banter, and then I began to listen to what she said because i'm wondering why she said that yeah and it may have been because a the band was a little loud the guitar player might have been a little loud and i uh felt that i i needed the hi-hat to to she may have been right and i don't want to say anything because she's you know some i'm not i don't want to insult uh this person i don't remember who she was but she did have the nad to come up and say your hi-hat's too loud well i always remembered that I don't know why. So I, I I would use that thinking about maybe the hi-hat is too loud in this mix of what I'm playing. Yeah. And then I go through changes for, you love the hi-hat sound from the old days, right? Well, I learned how to develop and master quick beats from Zildjian. All three sizes, 15, 14, and 13s. So 80% of those records were cut with quick beats. And um, Zildjian doesn't even, they say they make them, but nobody buys them. They were so efficient and they were very similar to what Soph was playing from the 60s without the holes. So I leave Zildjian and go to Paiste and Paiste doesn't have anything like that. Uh, however, over the last four years, I have, I do have two signature rides with them. But I have had Eric develop a set of 15-inch 602 sound edge, ultra heavy, like heavier than they they make. And like most drummers can't play them. So I have three sets of those prototypes. One travels on the road, one's here, and one goes, one's at the studios. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm going to be taking one to Japan. Well, that does get it done. But I guess the point of that is, I can be in a situation where I'm playing that at mezzo forte and playing the drums, maybe a little louder than that. And the hi-hats are, are uh, pushing through a little bit too loud. 
So I think that's the moral of the story is that girl's comment <laughs> has always been there and it's been 45 years ago. And that's such a common thing to overplay our symbols and our hi-hats, especially when you're going from, you know, an experienced live player into the studio. Yes. Yes. I mean, yeah. that's why guys like Jerry Murata, he, I remember him saying, man, I never even play on hi-hats, man. When I was with Gabriel, man, I would never play hi-hats. You know, I'm going to play all this other stuff. And, and it's a very interesting concept. Yeah, I think, and that was a time, that was an era when they were, you know, overdubbing symbols later, you know, just the separation. And my understanding is that when they got, before they got to that spot, they're like, you know what, it sounds great, but we're not going to do anything. Um, Right, right. Two things I do want to ask you. One is a real quick, I found it, it's that this, there's a singer-songwriter I've been working with in just recent months, and he does a handful of covers, and one of them is Back on the High Life. Oh yeah, yes. And I, I, I mean, I've known that song forever, but I, there's that, there's the snare rolls during, um, if is it a chorus or a turnaround or something like that? Was that an overdub on that? Do you recall or? Are, are I, you I do recall everything about that song. Okay, um, that was the first of all uh, uh, from uh, the self-titled album uh, back in the high life, which was higher love and. And all the wake me up on Judgment Day with Joe Walsh and stuff, um, but Higher Love was uh, Steve's peak mm. of writing. Yeah. Uh, but when we got to, uh, I was flown out to New York, and I was doing a George Benson record at Clinton, and uh, I had a day off, and I got a phone call in my hotel room, literally right when I got back into the studio, and it was Russ Tidelman and Russ. Uh, you know, who was our producer and Eric Clapp's, Clapton's producer. And Russ Tidelman goes, John, man, I, I know you're in town, man. You want to come over and listen to some stuff? I go, who, who are you doing? He goes, oh, Steve Winwood. I go, okay. So I, I took a shower and went over there and uh, sat in this. They, no, no, you're sitting here, right, in the, in the in the sweet spot. I go, okay. And I see Tom Lord Algie there and Steve in a second. And they put on a, a bidding track of Higher Love. And and it was just Steve's Fairlight and and whatever uh, his program synths were and a Tommy Braylauer, Jimmy Braylauer, uh, kind of a hypnotic hurt groove and nothing else. Mm-hmm. And I rose my hand like a little third grader. <laughs> I, go, I go, can I play on this? They go, why do you think you're here? <laughs> I go, okay. But anyway, so we brought the drums over. I cut that. We got into the next song back in the high life again and there was no james taylor on there yet mm. uh, but the song was complete uh unlike higher love which was not complete and um i i just had a good vibe about that song a relaxed vibe it had a really kind of soothing tempo soothing changes soothing melody mm-hmm. um uh i found it to be incredibly organic from the perspective of I played the drums all organically. So the question is, when we got to the bridge, which is boom, 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 boom. That's the section you're talking about, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I did everything in one take. 
And when I got to that section, I kept clouding my brain with the word Steve Gad. In other words, I'm in Steve's town, I'm in his state. Steve owns New York. And, you know, he's 12 years older than me. So, you know, he was obviously a very much uh, influential person. So I go, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to put John Robinson meet Steve Gad on this bridge and we're going to go through it. And I'm playing, playing some hip shit and it's working. And it's like, but what it does is when we came back in and listened to the take and they, nobody said anything. And, um, and I'm, I, I know actually inside my heart that it's too much. And in the words of Quincy Jones, he would go, yeah, you're dancing too much. In other words, you're playing too much shit. Mm-hmm. And, but nobody said anything. And I knew I was. In other words, it, it, it turned into a Johnny feature for that bridge and then went back to Steve. And I'm thinking, and I look at Russ and I go, it's a little bit too much. And he goes, yeah, 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 John. And then Steve, you know, thank you for not making me say it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, but you did. You will talk. <laughs> and, and and then Steve kind of chimed in and, and, and just a little bit. And I go, and Russ, then Russ immediately got his hot producing chops up and he said, why don't we go in and we'll punch in the bridge. And uh, we were recording digital at that time. It's probably Mitsubishi. Could have been. I can't remember. I think it was Sony. Um, We did Mitsubishi with Michael later. Um, And I go, why don't you, uh, you know, you know, dial her down, uh, but yet still keep the syncopation going and, but leave a lot of space. So that's what happened. So the next take, I, I, I didn't think about it. I just, you know, it gave me two bar run up and when it came in, they punched in. And so I, I went, instead of playing all this movement with 16ths and accents, I went, I kept the eighth notes going with maybe a one and a two and a three, but not all the time. Yes. And I went, dun, dun, bop, space. Nine stroke roll. So like that. And then, then coming out of the end of that bridge, I used a, uh, was it a 13 or 17 stroke roll to come in, an open double uh, 17 stroke roll coming out. Yeah. Uh, I also embellished later using my old Ludwig Black Beauty on that album, by the way, that priceless drum that I still have. I have two of them, um, but that one I used uh, exclusively on that album. I uh, layered it again, and then we figured out where I might step on my own toes and made sure that it sounds like one drummer playing and not two drummers. So that was the only overdubs I had did on that, but everything else was organic. When it got to that, it's it, Steve's parts were going boom, boom, bop, bop, There's space forever there. Yeah. So what do you do as a, a musical artist with that or with that information? Do you go No, you don't. You leave the hole. You leave the space. You 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 interpret what the artist has written. Yeah. 
I think one last thing I want to talk about is I want to bring it up to Daft Punk if if you're interested in talking about this. Totally. The 10th anniversary of uh, Random Access Memories is out, and it's just such a it's such an amazing album over the last you know decade. It's just really defined the genre in such a beautiful way. And um, you don't have to be a hardcore fan of electronic music to really get into some great composition and some great playing by human beings. Uh, it's just a great record. And I'm curious to know, you're on seven tracks on this record. Yes. And, um, if you could just speak to that experience, the production, and uh, what was new to you with this, if there, if there was anything new to you, and kind of just... <laughs> that's sure. jack and i keep 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 asking a question yeah yeah he's got pictures on his phone that's amazing man um but yeah that i just i just love the record man it's it's really cool and um oh that's cool paul williams yeah come on man I, your phone must be just are, tell me there's going to be a picture book um uh, companion um that's look, look how look how fucking hip daft punk is they aligned with a 2026 honda that's not even built yet <laughs> anyway enough of that i'm sorry to interrupt your question no no that's amazing that's amazing i there's got to be in a some sort of companion photo album that goes along with your book that we, we ali's killing me my producer she i came up with um I mean, you know, I was a basketball player, so I, I mean, th th there's part of that in there. And that's um, the one with the hoop. Yeah. And that's, by the way, that is a NBA reverse move laid up backwards on the right side. That, I left that guy's jock strap right there where he, where, where I took him. Okay. Anyway, it's enough of that, but, uh, we, we've got kindly, we've got two or 300 pictures we're weeding through, yeah. but, uh, go, go back. So this, yeah, the, I, I, I get a call. And they go, you want to come to the 10th anniversary party? Oh, yeah, man, let's go. Jack and I go. So, you know, and I I, I don't know any of these people. I mean, I I only saw a couple of people I knew, and one was Paul Williams, and none of the rhythm section came down. So I go, fuck it, I'm going to go down. And it was fun. They playing all the new record and and uh, all the new versions. And ask your question, because it's, it's yeah. it a monumental record. Yeah, I just want I'm just curious about that experience about the just the way music is being produced uh a lot even in Nashville uh is very similar to my understanding is how things were produced for that particular random access memories uh how that was produced and what your role was in it and your experience as as a as a drummer in this situation. Yeah, and I was uh, uh maybe had a little hand in that um from the beginning when I got a call from Chris Caswell, who was kind of like the rhythm section producer, uh, he's a keyboard player from Rochester. Okay. And, okay. and um, he goes, what studio do you like to work at? I go, well, let's go to Conway because uh, we can lock ourselves in the gates uh, and, and let's go to Conway C, which is the new room, which actually I helped with Mick Gazowski uh, do sonic wave testing for the room when it was gutted. So I was like very familiar with the room. And so, sure, we, we get a call, and we're going to work for three or four days in a row. And the rhythm section was Nathan East, uh, Paul Jackson, and then Chris Caswell. I, I, I meet the two guys from Daft Punk, you know, no helmets, and, and a whole bunch of people that are working for them. 
and we're like sworn to secrecy and it's all that stuff. And, uh, you know, we know what they look like. <laughs> they didn't land in Roswell. And, um, uh, I, I'm just trying to find out. And I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm going in with Mick Gazowski. He's a famous engineer. I mean, I've done hundreds of records with Mick, including that's what friends are for and all these kind of things. And, and, uh, Mick's got this whole thing going on with digital direction, digital input, but they've got the entire analog direction going on also. So they are also prepared to make a, a, a make vinyl. And so we were doing that simultaneously, which was incredible, expensive setup. Okay. And I mean, you know, in a perfect world, that's what you want to do today. Yeah. Uh, so that was done right. And I walk in and I'm looking at, hey, what are you gonna do? and then Chris comes up with a list of tempos and, and with a little title by it or something. And one says, uh, one sixteen that, and one twenty two that, and it goes down and, and we're in there just kind of, and Nathan and I are just jamming on anything, playing earth, wind and fire stuff, the Bible. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and all of a sudden I hear, oh, hey guys, why don't you guys play, play something in E, anything, uh, at 116. Uh, and where are we going? We're going to E, E, and then we'll go to A, and then back to E. Just do that. In other words, what? There's no song, I'm thinking. All right, all right whatever. I'm getting paid well. But we started doing something, and all of a sudden, hey, JR, don't uh, go to 16th notes on the hi-hat and then play the same groove. And then pretty soon, hey, Nate and Paul, why don't you guys take a break? Then I knew some shit was up. So, and I do tell younger drummers this story that when the producers start asking you to play grooves means that they are fishing and want to add your groove to something they're working on. Yeah. And I, and I would, if this happens again, I would insist upon co-writers but I was paid quite well. So, and I also got the weekend. I feel it coming out of it also, which okay. was a number one record. So it, 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 it I'm, I'm not betching. Uh, it was just a, a learning curve. So I was out there playing all sorts of grooves, different versions of grooves and they go, Oh, great, great. And everything's being recorded and they're documenting something. And I go, okay, I take a break, blah, blah. Then we go, okay, then Nate comes out, and then we try another song, and it was this song where I'm playing brushes on, on the first record. And that was almost a complete tune. So it was very, very, very cool. And yeah. then we and, and then we start playing uh, Lose Yourself to Dance, which is this nasty groove. And, and what you hear is you can hear my fills and, like, once in a while, a massive uh, crash but it's not played consistently through the, 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 the four and a half minutes. So they took X and, and looped me yeah. on that. And that was their prerogative, you know. Uh, right. But there were certain times where I didn't hear a song and I was helping make a song. Uh, and then, then the rest was history. And then they did New York recordings with Omar uh, and, and, uh, and then we had Pharrell uh, with us and Pharrell was on both sides. So, I mean, it was uh, a record had not been done like that. I was asked, I was going to, I was curious to know if that, if you'd experienced that before. Uh, I mean, Sinatra with Quincy 
but uh it's not in not in this realm um you know uh state of independence with donna summer and different things or you know us playing military stuff uh you know the 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 only other thing uh when when Hans Zimmer called me and asked to, to, for me to help him put the Superman drummers together at the first time. So I had a meeting with Hans Zimmer and uh, I said, well, you know, I was kind of insistent upon being the center of the time and build the drummers around me just because. And uh, but I wanted Vinny across from me. I didn't want him over in the corner. And so, so he and I had, I, so we basically controlled the world. Then we had all these other great cats. There was Keltner and Sheila and blah, blah, blah. But that was kind of an interesting scenario, not dissimilar to this, but, you know, as far as us going in there and making them, you know, they're plugging in rock and roll R and B live artists into electronica. It was the first time. It's 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 great and and it's interesting because uh, I, I'm seeing this in Nashville, uh, you know, uh, again, probably not prior to this, of course, but uh, certainly as uh, more and more young producers are coming to town and you know making waves with the way they're producing and friends of all ages are working with these young producers. They're like, yeah, I did this. And then I'm playing these grooves and they're asking me to play like a chorus type feel. And they're, yep. and then, and I, they're like, I don't know what I did, but I'm on this record now. And I was like, okay, wow, it's interesting. So it's, it's moving the needle even further and it just kind of wrapping our heads around what is being asked of us in this, you know, the way things are being produced and um you know being open to the idea especially if you're this is your gig this is your job to you know we're we're in the service industry <laughs> right but if i just must say though if they feel or the you know our our younger compadres feel that what they just did or one section of it leads to a definitive song yes Yes, they need to get compensated, and they need to hold their guns. And are, and are there examples of people doing that? Me helping? No, uh, of getting paid for the the composition. I would say limited. Yeah, you know, uh, but I, I, you know, in other words, a drummer is a musician who is contributing to the welfare of this hit record or a record. We don't know if yeah. it's going to be a hit record now. If he plays a part that has been captured by the producer and or artist that is a, a, a key toward to this record, you know, it's not just, you know, chopping wood, you know, you know, that's what, you know, the plagiarism is not chopping wood or, or even that last lawsuit we saw on world television, uh, you know, plagiarism is stealing uh, X amount of melodic notes. Uh, even if I played the intro to rock, rock with you on another record, that that's not plagiarism, which is kind of sad. Yeah. But, uh, um, uh, if I were to play, um, um, the ain't no buddy groove on something else, that would be plagiarism. Huh. Yeah. And maybe the rock with you could be too, but you know, if a drummer finds or thinks that he, he, he's contributed to, a hit record 
other than what he was hired to do was just play drums, uh, yeah, he needs to ask for co-writers. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. John, it has been an absolute pleasure, man. I, it's Thank you so much for your time and insight with this. This has been amazing. Matt, it's, it's an honor. And, uh, you know, thanks thanks to Chris for hooking us up. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I know what you're about. And, you know, and this is, uh, we, we're all about education and educating drummers. And, and um, you know, there's been a huge up spring you know, since I was a little kid and there weren't as many drummers and now there's a lot of drummers and, and we want to make sure that everybody, you know, uh, everybody's different, but yeah, yet yeah. we're, we're all contributing to this, to, to, to the same goal. So, you know, everybody needs to be happy and, and be creative, but yet don't forget our forefathers also. No, because that's, that's what's shaking booties, man. Shaking booties sells records and, and unfortunately so, uh, but uh, <laughs> it's all good. And safe travels to you uh, this next coming week. Uh, and when this book comes out, uh, if you're interested in coming back and talking oh, about it, um, let's reconnect because uh, that would be amazing. I'm very excited uh, about about this book. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much, Matt. And uh, thank you for having me on the show. And hopefully we'll see you uh, before that when I come down to Nashville there. That'd be amazing. That'd be amazing. All Thanks. Right. We'll have links in there and uh, we'll shout at you again soon. My honor. It's great being on your show. Yeah. Thanks, John. Talk to you All soon. Right, Bye-bye. Right. Bye. So there you have it. My conversation with J.R. Robinson. Man, that was fun. I hope you all enjoyed that. And uh, I don't know what else to say. Uh, it was just such an honor to speak with him. And uh, next year, when his book comes out, maybe we'll get a chance to speak to him again and uh, dive a little bit deeper in some of those stories. Stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's interview with Wisconsin drummer Mike Malone. You might have seen him on YouTube or Instagram. Uh, Such a great player and creating a lot of uh, really great content. Also, Mike is doing a feature on Zach for his YouTube page. So uh, keep an eye out for that. But for now, everyone, thanks so much for listening. And I hope to see you around. Bye-bye.